Hi everybody. Good to be back. Good to see everyone. Uh, Ruth gave a great talk last week. If you haven't heard it, um, you know it's not uh, posted because publicly posted because it was uh, it was meant to be a personal talk to introduce Ruth to all of you. Many of you don't know her. So it was kind of a way mind talk to tell about her life, but it was also a Dharma talk about uh, Vasubandhu and uh, mind-only teachings. You can uh, get a link for the talk if you go to resources at everydayzen. You e email resources at everydayzen.org. Send an email and, and Laura or somebody will send you the link. And thanks also to uh, Jeff, uh, who took care of the Enlightenment Ceremony on the 8th of December, and Jean, who took care of Suzuki Roshi Memorial on the 4th of December. It was a busy week uh, while I was away in Mexico, as Ruth said, uh, walking on the beach and getting in the warm water, which I was doing, uh, but also there was Rahatsu session going on too. So because I uh, forgot about uh, Vasubandha for a week, I'm a little rusty. So just to catch up, uh, I'm reviewing. Y you all know all this, but I'm just going to catch us up a little bit. <clears throat> Vasubandhu wants to write this text where he says that um, reality has three natures. And uh, hold on a second. Yeah. Uh, the imaginary nature, which is his term in this text for the ordinary world that we live in with all of the tr troubles and the problems and the uh, joys and the sorrows. The dependent nature or the other dependent nature, which is the world, that same world, seen as radically interconnected and dependent, especially on mind, for its illusory existence. And that's what makes it illusory, that things seem to be independently, solidly existent, but really everything is floating away all the time. And everything is dependent on mind. Without your mind, you don't have a world to live in. So everything really is mind and really is an insubstantial. And that's the second nature, seeing that everything is dependent on mind. And the third of the three natures is what uh, Ben translates as complete realized nature. And uh, Jay Garfield translates as the consummate nature and that's perfection, nirvana, awakening, which is the true face of the illusory world. So complete realized nature is in actuality the same as imaginary nature, only without the illusion of duality. So these are the three natures that Vasubandhu wants to set forth for us, and then his whole text is kind of showing how these three natures interact with one another in various ways and with the world we live in. 
And remember, the reason why he's doing this is because he wants us to find an appreciation of how our lives really are so that we can live our lives with some grace and some beauty and some compassion because, you know, he knows that unless we straighten ourselves out, life doesn't appear that way to us. In other words, what I'm saying is that Vasubandhu is not a philosopher who's trying to explain reality for us. That's what philosophers try to do. He's not trying to do that. He's a Dharma teacher trying to bring healing to our lives. And so he's decided that he wants to build on and extend the Buddhist teachings that he already received. He wants to go a little bit, state them in a little bit different way for our benefit in the, in the hopes that this restatement of the teachings is going to be helpful to us maybe in a different way or in a new, in a new way. So the last three verses that we covered last time were verses 14 through 16. And in those verses, uh, Vasubandhu was saying that each of the three natures, and he went through three verses, each one of the three natures, he was saying that both of them are both dual and non-dual. And, and I think we remarked at the, at the time that this is much, pretty much the teaching of Sandokai or even Heart Sutra, which says that the absolute quiescent or perfect nature of things is not another state of things other than the messed up troublesome nature of things it is the same except uh, there's a clarity in our seeing of it rather than seeing and being in the world in a distorted way so form is emptiness emptiness is form Relative and absolute unity and diversity interpenetrate. They merge into one another, as it says in the Sandokai title. Not two different things or two different states. You might say that the three natures are three different ways of seeing the same thing, but I think that would be going a little too far because no matter what way, we see things. The three natures are always there and they're always one. So this really is saying that there really is no important significant difference between awakening and suffering, which is kind of an astonishing thought. And when you know that, you are free of suffering. Or maybe we could say free within suffering. You can feel the suffering with a deep, deep and profound, we could say a profound sense of acceptance, even as you're working to alleviate it, there's a kind of profound acceptance of it and that changes everything. And this theme of absolute and relative being the same uh, reminds me of the Zen story that gives everyday Zen its name. Zhao Zhou asks Nanchuan, what is the way? Nanchuan says, everyday mind is the way. Ordinary, everyday mind, that's the way. 
but wait, Nanchuan says, that's suffering. That's what I'm trying to get beyond. And if everyday mind is already the way, then what, then what am I trying to do here? What am I aiming for? How am I going to escape? And Nanchuan says, well, there's nothing to aim for. There's no place you could escape to. Because this everyday mind that you think is suffering is actually beyond naming. It's beyond all your painful concepts. It's really vast and wide wherever you look. That's everyday mind. So we're not looking for insights or escape routes. We're only trying to live our lives every day without entanglement because there's nothing to tangle up in. And even when it feels tangled, it's okay. So that's where we were last week. And so in these next verses, we learn a little more. Now in, in the very next verse, number 17, we learn that the big difference between the first two natures and the third has to do with suffering. The first two natures are characterized by suffering and the third nature is characterized by non-suffering or purity. And this is the verse. The imaginary and dependent, that is the first two natures, are known as the characteristic of affliction, while the complete realized is known as the characteristic of purity. So the first two natures, imaginary and dependent, are both suffering. That's their characteristic. Suffering means duality, a split. The basic human problem of exile and alienation and separation. No matter what is going on, whether we think we're happy or we think we're sad, we're having a good day, we're having a bad day, we're alienated fundamentally from the world, we're separate from the world. And this is the reason why clinging and grasping come so naturally to us, so instinctual to us. Because it's a kind of effort at the bottom of our hearts to reach out to the world that is distant from us and to somehow make contact with it so that we can hold it in place. So we're always working hard, all the time. Mostly we don't even know we're doing this. To fix a problem that fundamentally does not exist. And of course, we can't fix the problem for that reason. So it's really, really, really frustrating. So that's the characteristic of the first two natures, the imaginary and, the, and, the, and dependent. And the complete realized nature is the way things truly are. No separation, no alienation, no world over here, me over there. Everything is mind, everything is Buddha. So there is no problem that needs to be fixed which is why this third nature is not suffering, it's purity, it's perfection. 
So uh, probably a lot of you know that for a long time I've been thinking about the idea of imagination. And, and I always say, you know, the spiritual path is so interesting and challenging and, and marvelous because it's a path of imagination. So when I talk like this, I'm using the word imagination in a different way from the way Vasubandhu is using it, but also not in a different way. When Vasubandhu uses the word imaginary or whatever Sanskrit word he uses that is almost always translated as, as imaginary, when he uses that word to describe the first of the three natures, he means delusion, the painful world of separation and paranoia, which is imaginary, it is not real. That's what he means. When I use the word imaginary or imagination, I mean the world of Dharma, the world of practice, the world of true reality that can only be accessed through the imagination. So it's almost like we're using the words, the same word, in opposite ways, but these two uses of that word amount to the same thing, since exactly what Vasubandhu is saying in this text is that the delusionary world we are imagining is not different from the perfect world of peace and harmony. Both are imaginary, both are imagined. To say that everything is mind, which is what this text is telling us, means that everything is imagined. So one simple way to think of this is to realize that in a very fundamental and sort of cognitive, scientific way, we are in fact making up the world we live in. The world that we perceive and sense is literally a production of our mind. And this means that we can imagine it differently this means that we could live in it differently. We could live in a different world if we can turn around our minds. The same world with the same problems, but since we are imagining the world and its problems differently, we would cope differently and experience differently while, of course, at the same time, the same. Different, but the same. We are Buddhas, really and truly. We were always already Buddhas, really and truly. But of course, at the same time, we know perfectly well we are ordinary sentient beings. Of course we are. Can you imagine the delusionary person going around thinking, I am Buddha? Ridiculously arrogant, since anybody who's honest can see their own mind. So... This may seem uh, odd or confusing, but to me it seems really obvious. This has to be the case. There is no other possibility. So in the next four verses, Vasubandhu is going to compare the three natures to one another 
And this time, he wants to show us that they are all the same. They are all non-different from one another in their essential characteristics. In verses 18 and 19, he shows that the imaginary nature and the complete realized nature have the same characteristics, so he's comparing those two. And in 20 and 21, he shows that the dependent nature and the complete realized nature have the same characteristics. So here's verse 18. Since the former has the nature of a false duality, and the latter is the non-existence of that nature, the imagined and the consummate are said to be non-different in characteristic. So I'm using here Jay Garfield's translation, to me that's slightly clearer. Since the former, meaning the imaginary, has the nature of a false duality, and the latter, the consummate, is the non-existence of that nature, the imagined and the consummate are said to be non-different in characteristic. So in his commentary to this verse, uh, Ben makes two crucial, beautiful statements that could be, you know, eternal practice slogans. They're really great. One is his own, and the other one is actually from Vasubandhu. His own is the, the following sentence that appears on page 116. He says, The root of Buddhist teachings is to turn toward and to acknowledge suffering. The root of Buddhist teachings is to turn toward and to acknowledge suffering. And on page 118, he's quoting uh, a phrase from another text by Vasubandhu, the, Mahasang, the, the Mahayana Sangraha, which is uh, not a verse, but a long explanatory text. There he says, having abandoned the afflictions while not having abandoned samsara. So this is a really crucial point, sort of fundamental to practice. When you see that everything is mind, that everything is imagined, you understand that all afflictions are imagined. And so you face them as they are, and when you face them as they are, they are no longer afflictions in the same way, because they're not you, and they're not yours, and so they're no longer painful in the same way. So the Mahayana Buddhist path is not a path to overturn suffering, to dissolve or eliminate suffering, but rather it's a path to turn toward the suffering, to look it right in the eye, and when you look it right in the eye and see it for what it really is, it's just different from what it was before. And in that way, we abandon the afflictions without abandoning samsara, which means we are Buddhas and we are sentient beings at the same time. And that's how we experience our life. So practically speaking, we're talking here about the practice of paying attention to afflictive emotions. Such a primary and important practice. Seeing and experiencing our suffering very cl closely and very honestly and 
balancing that seeing with the rest of our existence. So for instance, something happens that causes you a great deal of anguish and then there you are experiencing that very anguish and you see arising within you the impulse to, to blame or to cover it up you know run away from it wish it were otherwise you see those impulses but right now regardless of the reason why you are anguished there is the anguish here in front of you and there's no one to blame and since it's here there's no use making it worse by running away or wishing it were otherwise or lamenting your fate so you can feel the anguish completely and at the same time and this is how we practice you can feel that you're breathing you can feel your human body you can feel that the world is still here around you the sun is still providing light love still exists in this world even right at this moment while you are anguished in other words you will experience fully your anguish and the total situation in which that anguish exists and then you know that the anguish is not just yours and it doesn't belong to you exactly and in this way you are right in the middle of samsara but you are no longer afflicted you are no longer in the same way plagued by your anguish your anguish in fact connects you to this world And as we have noted many times, this, this is one of the main features of the mind-only teachings. This is why the mind-only teachings exist, to emphasize this practice of facing suffering as mind. When, when you emphasize that the whole world is mind, that there's nothing but mind, that everything arises, as Vasubandhu says elsewhere, as the germination of seeds that are stored in the alaya consciousness, that means that you have the power to water seeds of wisdom and goodness and not water seeds of affliction. So this practicing with afflictive emotions in this way is a fundamental practice of the mind-only teachings, though uh, working with mind uh, in this way, some version of this is early in Buddhism. This is a refinement of that. So here's 19, and again, I'm sticking with Garfield. And this, as you'll see, is basically saying the same thing the previous verse says, only reversing the terms. Since the former has the nature of non-duality, the former in this case being the consummate or the complete realized, has the nature of non-duality, and the latter, the imaginary, has the nature of non-existent duality, the consummate and the imagines are said to be non-different in characteristic. So this is the same as the previous verse. Verse 18 focuses on the duality that characterizes the imagined nature and says that since this duality doesn't really exist, the imagined nature is the same as the complete realized nature in which there is no duality. 
That's why they're the same. And here he starts in this verse from the opposite direction. Since the complete realized nature has no duality, and since the dualism of the imagined nature doesn't actually exist, the two have the same characteristic. Now, you might ask, like, why does he have to go through this exercise you know, of saying the same thing? Really, I don't know that anything at all is added by this second verse. So why does, why does he do that? I guess, maybe, and I'm just speculating here, I guess he does it to, to really hammer home the point. Because it's really counterintuitive, you know, one looks over and over again and you, and you find you really, you know, you hear, hear the words and you understand what he's saying, but you don't really believe it, you know? Because it's sort of the opposite of what we want to hear. We're suffering in this imaginary world and we want to get out of that suffering. We want to get out of the imaginary world over into the complete realized world so we can finally be relieved of all of this trouble. And so it's hard to accept that no, there isn't another something that we can, not even another viewpoint even really. The two worlds are really one, really and truly. So he repeats this in two different ways, from two different angles, maybe, just so finally we get the point. And then in the next two verses, he does more or less the same thing, only now instead of comparing the imaginary and the consummate, he's comparing the dependent and the consummate. But he says it a little differently, you'll see. Since the former is deceptive in the way it appears, meaning the imaginary, and the latter has the nature of not being that way, not being deceptive, the other dependent and the consummate are said to be non-different in characteristic. So remember, in this text, the second nature, other dependence or interdependence, mostly refers to the fact that everything exists in dependence on mind rather than the more usual analysis that everything exists in dependence on everything else. Both of these are always true, but in this, this text, Vasubandhu is emphasizing how everything is dependent on mind. And again, this relates to the practice of being with afflictive emotions. When you stay with awareness of the present moment, which includes everything, your thoughts, your feelings, your body, the surroundings in which you find yourself, you see that everything is dependent on mind. And that, as Ben writes in his commentary to this verse, there are no actual things. I mean, this is what you experience. You experience the flow of impressions, one after the other, with no impression being, you know, graspable, no impression being hard and fast because it's gone and there's another one. And there's no holding on to these impressions and there's no one to hold on to these impressions other than the impression, which takes the form of a thought or a feeling, that there is someone there. So he, he, he realizes in his whole scheme that we, have the, that we have the impression that we're here. You know, he, he's not denying that, except that we don't realize that it's an impression. It's part of the flow of experiences. 
rather than a real me that's here. None of that is actually here. If you really pay attention, you experience exactly and directly the endless flow of experiences that go on from the very beginning of your life all the way to the end of your life all the time. Even when you're asleep, you know, there's experiences going on. Most of them you're unconscious of, but some of them you kind of reprocess as dreams and you're conscious of them somehow when you wake up or maybe in your sleeping. But there's an endless flow of impressions, none of which are things that can be grasped. And they come and go because that's what mind is. Mind is the endless flow of impressions. Mind itself is not another thing, right? A big box in which this is happening. No, this being happening is what mind is. So all experiences, conscious and unconscious, are mind, depend on mind, and mind is that flow, it is not an entity. So everything is dependent nature. Now, here Vasubandhu says, this dependent nature is deceptive since it appears that here I am independently having these experiences when in fact this is not the case. I am never, I, have, I am not, I have never been a separate person in a hostile world that surrounds me. I am a phenomenal creation of the world around me. I am an all-inclusive focal point within that world, and my thoughts and experiences arrive out of that situation. It's a natural phenomenon, moment after moment. My thoughts are not me, they're not mine. Why are they there? Because of all the flow of experiences that preceded the moment of this thought, my, my upbringing, my education, the books I read, the previous thoughts I've had, my station in life, my relationships, and what happened yesterday, or a moment ago, or 50 years ago. That's why my experience of the present moment appears. It all comes from mind and mind's conditioning. Because the whole world is as it is in this moment, I am having this particular experience. It couldn't be otherwise, and whoops, there's another one. So the dependent nature that deceptively appears to me as mine isn't me or mine. It's just peaceful, empty Buddha-ness which is why the dependent nature and the complete realized nature are non-different in characteristics. In the next verse, again, Vasubandha reverses the terms in order to make the same point. 21. Since the former has the nature of non-existent duality, and the latter is its non-existence in the way it appears, the other dependent and the consummate are said to be non-different in characteristic. So at this point, I back up a little bit to think a little bit more about Vasubandhu's terms. Now, maybe we said this before, but 
in, in, all, in almost all the systems of Mahayana or, or Zen thought that talk about this dialectic between the absolute and the relative and different terms are used, unity or diversity, dualistic and non-dualistic, samsara and nirvana, these are all different terms that indicate the dialectic between the absolute and the relative. And it's in the Sandokai, it's in the Heart Sutra, it's all over the Zen dialogues. In all these cases, there's two poles, not three. Two natures, you know, not three. But now in this text, and I think this is the only place where he does this, emphasizes this, Vasubandhu talks about three natures. We've been talking about three natures since we began this. In most of the other cases, the dependent and the complete realized are one and the same. In other words, the second and the third natures in most of these other systems are the same thing. To see the emptiness of all dharmas, the absolute, is the same as seeing their interdependence. Since they're interdependent and there's nothing that's nothing that's interdependent other than interdependence, all dharmas are empty. So for some reason, Vasubandhu is taking pains here to distinguish between the interdependent and the complete realized. This is, this is where what he's doing is new, as well as his eight consciousness system that we talked about in other, t other contexts. That's also new in the uh, mind-only system. So why does he want to do this? Why does he want to distinguish between the dependent and the complete realized? And as we saw in the verse 17 where we started tonight, this difference that he's making between them is really important to him because the dependent nature is afflicted and the complete realized is not. So why is he doing this? Why does he take apart usually what is one absolute nature and divide it into two and decide that half of it is afflicted? Well, in the last two sets of verses, before these two we just read, 18 19, which were about imaginary nature and complete nature, and then these two about dependent nature and complete nature, what's the difference between these two sets of two verses? The difference is that Vasubandhu is emphasizing duality, fundamental duality in the first case, but in the second case, he uses the word deception. So, I think that he's trying to delineate two stages, more or less, of observation. Two stages of practicing with our experience. Because again, all this is not just about, you know, concepts. This is about practice. So he's saying this, I think. The imaginary nature is cruder, it's more crude, it's more rudimentary. This, this is before we ever practice at all, and we're totally stuck in duality. We're almost paranoid. You know, paranoia, which is like a kind of mental illness, I think is the most common thing in the world. People, we're all paranoid, right? We live in a dualistic world. Everybody around us is threatening. 
all the time, you know, in, in small ways, I mean sometimes in very big ways, but even when we live in a nice peaceful place and everybody's nice and kind, everybody's at the same time threatening. One false word, you know, and we're humiliated, we're upset. So we're living in, in a very, um, you know, paranoid situation in a big scary world in which we are small and vulnerable and we're constantly on the defensive constantly protective constantly in a kind of protective crouch this is sort of like you know typical samsara but this is not us because you know we, we start practicing we practice for a long time you know we understand ourselves better we understand the world better we realize, you know, that it's not like that, that actually we are the world, the world is us. We're not as scared as we used to be, we're not as alienated. And maybe we can even say, you know, I'm not suffering nearly as much as I used to. It was really bad, you know. But now, it's not nearly so bad. I'm doing pretty well. And this is the deception. This is, this is why I think Vasubandhu breaks this down in the way that he does. Because at this point, we're better off for sure, and we have wisdom for sure. But there is still a shadow of self-clinging, and we don't even notice it. So maybe, I'm speculating here, Vasubandhu is giving us this distinction, this third in between quality that he calls the dependent to indicate that we have not let go enough yet there is more to do and I wonder whether he didn't actually observe this in himself in his own practice or maybe in the practice of those around him that you can practice very effectively effectively enough to relieve much of your suffering and then you might be tempted to sort of stop there because you have been able to become more or less happy and content and you don't really realize that there's more self-clinging there to let go of so Vasubandhu wants to challenge you on this And in his commentary to verse 21, Ben is again quoting from the Mahayana Samgraha of Vasubandhu. He quotes the following. For those who are endowed with great means, meaning, you know, great practitioners, the afflictions become factors of awakening and samsara has the character of peace. So this is saying a lot more than saying the afflictions are much better, you know, you don't suffer nearly as much, hardly at all, and samsara is peaceful for, you know, is, is quiet, quieted down. Here he's saying the afflictions are factors of awakening. And samsara is nirvana. And then he quotes this poem by one of the nuns of the Terigata, a nun named uh, Dhamma, and here's her poem. We can appreciate this. Those of us who are a little bit 
up in the years can appreciate this poem. I wandered for alms, I leaned on a stick, my whole body was weak and trembled, suddenly I fell down and could not and could clearly see the misery of this body. My heart was freed. So Dhamma is an old lady with a cane who falls down and when her body hits the ground she becomes awakened. <laughs> Everybody's so scared of falling down but maybe it's not so bad you could get awakened when you fall down and whack your <laughs> whatever. So, so for those of us with aging bodies and maybe we're scared about our aging bodies or maybe we're complaining about our aches and pains take heart you can be awakened by your own aging body if you can for a moment see them as they really are marvelous and miraculous process of living and dying you can see it in your very body so this in this way affliction becomes a tool for awakening so this is this is something else this this is more than alleviating our suffering learning how to gracefully cope with it uh, not making it worse which by the way is not a small thing don't get me wrong <laughs> this is not a small thing not to make things worse and to be able to cope with your suffering graciously is worth a lifetime of practice definitely but here Vasubandhu is saying yet there's more than this we could be awakened by our human pain we could be awakened by our love for the world and our concern for its pain our afflictions could not only become tolerable but could become factors for our awakening and we could see our suffering as peace imagine seeing the anguish suffering of the world as peace I think that's what Vasubandhu is proposing so we're gonna have a chance to talk about this but before the, uh, that I want to just say a few just a word about what's coming up uh, we have our uh, event on Saturday at the church so it's scheduled to be a hybrid event and it's not going to be a regular all-day sitting we're starting at 10 and ending at 4 we'll sit in the morning we'll sit and walk in the morning and then we'll have uh, lunch so bring you bring your lunch maybe also for the, for fun because it's holiday time you could bring something to share as well but there won't be lunch at the church so don't forget that um, and in the afternoon we're, we'll sit a little bit but mostly we'll, we'll have we'll be in groups talking talking about our practice how we're doing as a community and then after that talking specifically about our practice of precepts and then we'll conclude the day with the full moon ceremony the Bodhisattva precepts ceremony now um, we we plan on this being hybrid and I think we've got uh, our zoom host lined up and everything but uh, John our 
everybody knows John, who is, thanks to John, you know, we, and Laura too, and others, but John is the one on the scene with the camera and the whole thing to make it happen. John's got a lot going on in his family. So he might not be able to come to any event at any time. And we don't really have backup, you know? We don't have anybody, anybody who is able to say, yes, I'll be there. If you're, never not, if you're ever not there, I'll be there. I'll be sure, for sh be sure to be there. So we don't, so in other words, what I'm saying is that for any all-day sitting or for the hybrid seminars, um, we don't know. We, we, we schedule them, we plan on having them, but it's possible that we might have to cancel them at the last minute because we don't have tech backup. Now that's not true for these seminars because you know, these are not complicated. I, I can do all of it by myself and all the Zoom hosts know what to do. It's the hybrid stuff that involves a camera on site and all that that, that we, may be, we may have trouble with. So I just wanted to let you know all that. So then we're going to meet after that Saturday. We'll meet the following Wednesday and we'll have another session on Vasubandhu. We'll do a few more verses. And then uh, we'll take two weeks off. We're going to take the 27th off and the 3rd off. So we can, you know, have a holiday season and holiday break. And then we'll come back the week after that. So that's what is coming up. Recording stopped. The other thing 